Donald Trump and Republican allies in Congress expose. This House investigation has explosive, intense and important new evidence as some discuss the mounting case for a crime by the former president. The January 6th committee has released these text messages and they really show something that many people may have thought, but there's a difference between thinking or drawing inferences and actually having the evidence. It is the swirl of communications around former chief of staff Mark Meadows, and it is engulfing more and more top Republicans. Tonight, new confirmation that Congressman Jim Jordan was one of them. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa podcast. And then there was Jim Jordan. We always knew this creepy fucking scumbag had his paw prints all over January 6th. For months, he has denied any connection to what happened that day and has spent the past year as the GOP's main attack dog in its effort to whitewash the insurrection and delegitimatize the investigation. Now, with the release of Mark Meadows' texts, which will go down in history, along with Nixon's Watergate tapes, as one of the most egregious examples of political self-destruction, Jordan has been revealed as a behind-the-scenes plotter of the worst kind. What Jim Jordan did by forwarding that text was obstruct an official proceeding. And that statute, which is a 20-year felony, says if you actually obstruct or you attempt to obstruct or you endeavor to impede an official congressional proceeding like the electoral vote count, you've committed the federal felony of obstructing an official proceeding. That is what Jim Jordan did. On Wednesday, Jordan confirmed that a January 5th text message to Meadows disclosed as coming from a GOP member of Congress came from him. The reason he did so is that he and allies have argued the text was doctored because it truncated what he wrote and added a period where one didn't appear. Jordan also said he was not speaking in his own words, but rather forwarding an argument from a former Bush administration official. Sure, fuckface, way to pass the buck. Get the fuck out of here. The text effectively argued that Pence could and should unilaterally reject certain state's electors that day, but it did so in a rather remarkable way. On January 6th of 2021, Vice President Mike Pence, as President of the Senate, should call out all the electoral votes that he believes are unconstitutional as no electoral votes at all, said a text in the portion disclosed by Representative Adam Schiff. The rest of the text read, in accordance with guidance from founding father Alexander Hamilton and judicial precedents, no legislative act, wrote Alexander Hamilton in Federalist Number 78, contrary to the Constitution, can be valid. The court in Hubbard v. Lowe reinforced this truth, that an unconstitutional statute is not a law at all, is a proposition no longer open to discussion. This is Jim Jordan in a text message to Mark Meadows saying, apologies, F the voters. They don't matter. They don't count. Just throw out Joe Biden's win and install Trump for a second term. Do we think Jim Jordan now needs to be held accountable for his conduct? To undermine the election's results? To undermine the democratic process? 
you bet he does. There's no point interpreting what all this means unless you want me to go into a detailed political analysis of the Federalist Papers and the concept of judicial review. I barely passed constitutional law, so forgive me. At the end of the day, it's just more bullshit thrown at the fucking fan. Instead of Italian satellites, they're using outdated constitutional law that has no bearing. Jim Jordan's a traitor. He's a traitor of the Constitution of the United States. He has been a traitor of the Constitution of the United States for, for quite a while. Um, and now we actually have it in text. But we shouldn't be surprised. And why is anybody surprised? We saw it on the floor when they were calling out you know, Arizona, for example, place that I uh, represent, and saying that there was fraudulent votes. And they made up lies on the House floor. So how are we surprised right now? How was anybody surprised by any of this, right? My biggest issue isn't Jim Jordan. My issue is the fact that there's a lot of people that are not not taking this serious. The fact that there is a slow-moving coup that is happening right now all over this country that are led by the Jim Jordans and you know and and other people. So instead of people being dressed up in you know uh, you know uniform uh, or wannabe uniforms storming the Capitol, now they're actually trying to win state house seats, state senate seats, secretary of state seats, county recorder seats. So it could actually overturn the future election, right? So the the coup is ongoing. The traitors are still there, and they're going to continue to try to destroy our Constitution every opportunity they have. According to Aaron Blake from the Washington Post, it was just another desperate, legally dubious, and democracy-imperiling idea to people who were clearly desperate to pursue such things. It also, crucially, shows a guy Republicans tried to put on the January 6th committee promoting precisely the scheme of bullshit the Capitol rioters tried to force Congress to pursue. Based upon this, and combining it with the conversations Jordan had with Trump on January 6th, there's little doubt Jordan's own actions would have been a focus of the committee that he was picked to serve on. Clearly he has material information about the planning and more and more of it's coming out that people within the White House, people within the United States Congress were part of a deliberate effort to, let's be clear, not take the election from one party or another, but take the election from the American people, from the voters. Um, that's a very scary thing. And so, yes, he should be called um, and voters should go to the polls at every opportunity and frankly purge these people from the United States government, because I agree with the congressman, we are dangerously close to the end of American democracy, and we're watching it unfold now in real time. January 6th committee member Adam Kinzinger tore into Jordan for concealing his own communications with the Trump White House on January 6th, even as Republicans tried to name him to the committee investigating the affair. For Jim Jordan to have done that, and then to want to serve on the committee, first off, shows that there would not have been. All he would have served was trying to shut down the legitimate inquiry of this committee. By the way, he wants to serve as chairman if Republicans win the majority of probably oversight and government reform, uh, or judiciary, actually. Um, that's a sad thing. It's a sad, uh, that's a sad notion. And, you know, we used to be the party wolf that was committed to, I'll say, law and order, but also the rule of law. And now we're using, trying to use the nuances of the law to overthrow the will of the people. That's never been the intention of that. And that's why I think we need to look at the Electoral Count Act, not just look at it, we need to make some reforms because this dry run on January 6th that mercifully failed, there's a lot you can learn from it if you run this uh, script again. In the end, Jordan's text, along with its dubious political intent, was one of thousands sent to Mark Meadows. 
Beyond highlighting the massive amount of sheer bullshit that was spread after the election, it also shows the danger in trying to please Donald Trump. Now trust me, anyone who has ever put themselves in the position of doing this man's dirty work has ended up either indicted or behind bars. Meadows can now add himself to that list. Meadows was always trying to to um, basically argue that he was put a check on Trump's worst impulses. He was saying to people in Pence's office, he was saying to more mainstream Republicans, you know, I think we can figure out a way for this to end peaceably. I'm sure that the president will come to understand that he's lost this election. But what you see is this duality. One face saying, we're going to do the reasonable thing, and another working with the president's allies to stoke his very worst impulses. Meanwhile, the latest January 6th subpoena suggests that the probe is rapidly becoming a criminal investigation. The committee subpoenaed retired Army Colonel Phil Waldron, the author of the infamous PowerPoint presentation outlining how former President Donald Trump could stay in power despite losing the 2020 election. The PowerPoint presentation was handed over to the committee by former White House Chief of Staff, yeah, Mark the Idiot Meadows. Phil Waldron has been subpoenaed by the Select Committee. He is that retired U.S. Army colonel connected to the 38-page PowerPoint that contained a blueprint for overturning the 2020 election, the one that was sent to Mark Meadows that Mark Meadows later turned over to the January 6th committee. In a letter announcing the subpoena, committee chairman Benny Thompson writes this, quote, Mr. Waldron reportedly played a role in promoting claims of election fraud and circulating potential strategies for challenging the results of the 2020 election. He was also apparently in communication with officials in the Trump White House and in Congress discussing his theories in the weeks leading up to the January 6th attack. The document he reportedly provided to administration officials and members of Congress is an alarming blueprint for overturning a nationwide election. In going after Waldron, it's less about his far-fetched and ridiculous fucking PowerPoint than the people he spoke to in power. It's those communications that will ultimately prove a conspiracy from the White House on down. It's actually, what this suggests to me is they are now circling around key individuals in power, both in Congress, the White House, and most specifically, Mark Meadows. I have a copy of a letter that was just sent to Phil Waldron, who's a, who's a kook, and I'm sure that he's facing some liability. But this is not about Waldron, it's about more than that. What they ask is they say, according to public reporting, you claim to have visited the White House on multiple occasions after the election, spoken to Mark Meadows maybe eight to 10 times and briefed several members of Congress on election fraud theories. And then, as you say, the letter gets into the PowerPoint and so on. But what Congress is doing here is they are really trying to get information, not about Waldron per se, but about Waldron's contacts with Trump, with Meadows, and with members of Congress. And any of those individuals could violate that criminal statute we were talking about earlier, obstruction of an official proceeding. And indeed, the language in this letter to Colonel Waldron today by Congress repeats some of the language from that statute. So this is now rapidly becoming a criminal investigation and a criminal investigation that's looking not just at some of these low-level kooks, but people in positions of power. This is all leading towards one question. Did Donald Trump's actions amid the Capitol attack amount to criminal obstruction of Congress? 
Now, twice last week, committee vice chairman representative Liz Cheney raised the possibility that Trump's conduct while the mob of his supporters overtook the Capitol could qualify as an effort to obstruct the certification of Joe Biden's victory. Cheney described that as a key topic facing the panel, particularly as it sought the testimony of former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. The vice chair of the investigation, Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney, is making crystal clear now, both, both last night and again today, that the turn the January 6th investigation has taken is toward criminal liability, not just who's going to look like a bad guy in history, but who's been caught potentially committing crimes here. Mr. Meadows' testimony will bear on another key question before this committee. Did Donald Trump, through action or inaction, corruptly seek to obstruct or impede Congress's official proceedings to count electoral votes. Cheney's statements includes precise terminology from the criminal obstruction statute. And she's not the only one pondering the matter. It's become the subject of intense debate in the case of dozens of January 6 rioters whom prosecutors allege obstructed Congress's effort to count electoral votes on January 6. Did Donald Trump, through action or inaction, corruptly seek to obstruct or impede Congress's official proceeding to count electoral votes. To convict someone of that crime, a jury must determine that a defendant took an obstructive action, affected an official proceeding, and acted with corrupt intentions. There are several obstruction statutes in the criminal code, but the one deployed by prosecutors in January 6 cases is among the most severe, carrying a whopping 20-year maximum sentence. Quote, a casual observer might have missed it, but what Cheney was doing here was pointing to a specific criminal statute, a felony, uh, 18 U.S. Code 1512, that she suggests Donald Trump might have violated. Cheney's comment matches the language of the statute. It states, whoever corruptly obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding or attempts to do so shall be fined under this title or imprisoned, not more than 20 years or both. That law defines an official proceeding as including a proceeding before the Congress. Other members of the January 6th panel have stopped short of specifying the criminal elements of obstruction when discussing Trump's conduct, but they've acknowledged that it's on their radar. It's clearly one of the things on the mind of some of the members of the committee, said Representative Jamie Raskin. Raskin then added that a series of text messages sent to Meadows on January 6th revealed in public last week by Cheney, have heightened the relevance of the obstruction statute. The messages showed frantic efforts by close Trump associates, from aides to lawmakers to Fox News hosts to his own eldest son, to get the then president to call off the rioters as they swarmed the Capitol. Trump did not act for hours amid the bedlam. The tantalizing possibility that there is light at the end of the tunnel for the committee and it ends with a Donald Trump indictment leads me to believe that these guys know what they are doing. My hope is that come November that they have released so much information and dragged the perpetrators of this horrible day through enough mud that has some impact on the outcome of the midterms. But that's another thing entirely. Until then, we can only hope for more truth.
And now for the main event. My next guest on Mea Culpa is none other than Norm Eisen. The former Obama administration ethics czar has been increasingly busy of late helping safeguard our elections and the future of democracy. Earlier this week, Eisen announced in the Washington Post his intent to sue both the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers for their actions on January 6th. Eisen wrote in an op-ed, the litigation, filed Tuesday, is the first civil case brought by a government body to hold insurrectionists, here the Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, and certain of their members and affiliates, accountable for the harm they inflicted on that day. This lawsuit is about holding accountable the violent groups and individuals who conspired to attack our freedom, to brutalize our law enforcement officers, and to terrorize our community. Eisen, who was a co-counsel on the House Judiciary Committee's first Trump impeachment efforts, has spent the past year through the Brookings Institute and other groups working to expose the myriad ways Trump and his cronies broke the law not only on January 6th, but in their attempts to overturn the election as well. From exposing Trump's potential crimes in Georgia to suing the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, Eisen is a witness to history intent on making sure none of this shit happens again. He joins me today on Mea Culpa as the committee begins the next phase of its investigation and has potentially exposed former President Trump to criminal obstruction charges. So let's go now to that conversation. Alrighty, so Norm, yesterday the Washington Post published an op-ed co-authored by you entitled we sued the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers to prevent another January 6th. What do you hope to gain from this lawsuit, and how will it actually help prevent another insurrection? Michael, uh, one of the first principles of dealing with um, anti-democratic movements is to hold the bad actors accountable. Because if we don't do everything possible to respond to the insurrectionists on January 6th, uh, they'll do it again and again. Uh, the lawsuit where um, I am among the pro bono counsel to uh, the District of Columbia, represented by the DCAG, Carl Racine, and uh, my organization, States United Democracy Center, um, the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, two fantastic law firms, Paul Weiss and Deckard. Uh, we're um, all part of the uh, pro bono team um, uh, sporting the AG, the litigation effort that the AG is leading because uh, it's, it's not enough that uh, the insurrectionists are being criminally prosecuted. Uh, you have to go after them civilly. They need to make the District of Columbia whole. The terrible injuries that were suffered by uh, uh, D.C. police, uh, for example, uh, physical and other trauma. Uh, they should pay. The organizations should pay. The individuals should pay. Uh, and so uh, we've brought this lawsuit uh, to see that justice is done, that the district is made whole, but also that there are no more insurrections by targeting some of the leading alleged insurrectionists. So what are the allegations that you're claiming in this lawsuit? If you would, walk me through your lawsuit. Just as a side note, I just filed 
my lawsuit, 28-page lawsuit against the U.S. government, Donald Trump, Bill Barr, Justice Department, um, Bureau of Prisons, Michael Carvajal, um, James Petrucci, the warden of Otisville, Patrick McFarland, RRM over. There's like 16 named individuals onto it for violating my First Amendment constitutional right and remanded me back to prison because I refused to sign a document that would force me to waive, again, my First Amendment constitutional right. So I know what my allegations are. I'm trying to sort of get a better understanding from you if possible. You sued, for example, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keeper. Uh, the Oath Keepers. What was what was the allegations that you raised and what's the damages? The Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and dozens and dozens of their members uh, conspired, we allege, to violently and unlawfully attack the Capitol and to block members of Congress from completing their constitutional duty to count and to certify the results of the twenty. 20 presidential election on Michael in the complaint, we detail uh, the planning, the publicizing, the recruiting, and the financing of the attack, the directions that were given the day of the attack, uh, the attackers seeking out individual members of Congress, vandalizing the Capitol, causing those members to flee for their safety, and of course, the terrible, terrible injuries and deaths that resulted to multiple people, including district police officers. I hope your listeners, and you've got a lot of them, uh, will give the complaint a read. It's it's like a novel, but we wanted to make sure it's an incredible uh, gripping narrative, but it's all true. And it's grounded by the evidence. And we wanted to make sure that there was, I won't call it a happy ending to the narrative, but there was a fair and just and right ending, uh, which is uh, that these groups and individuals should pay um, uh, for for the harm that they did, uh, the costs that the district incurred, the physical trauma, the, the other damage, uh, particularly to the to the members of the MPD, the Met- Metropolitan Police, the main um, legal theory um, is uh, 42 U.S.C. 1985 and 1986, the Ku Klux Klan Act, and and basically in the uh, aftermath of the Civil War, in the middle of Reconstruction, you had people like now getting together who hated the American idea who hated what Lincoln called the second founding of America, and they had conspiracies to attack fundamental civil rights. They passed this law, these laws to forbid that, and now we see that again, a conspiracy to attack the meaning of the United States, and that's why we're we're supporting the AG pro bono with so many other incredible uh, pro bono lawyers uh, to uh, see that justice is done. Yeah, well, good for you, because at the end of the day, I mean, I'm sure it reads like a novel, because it was like a movie. It was really like a movie script. You couldn't make this up if you were Ron Howard, you know, or Steven Spielberg. It's truly insane. And that's what makes the story so, you know, so shocking is right. You know, while you were doing your investigation on this, are you aware... Who was it that organized this Ellipse rally in the first place? Do you know? 
Well, th- that is one of the uh, that is one of the important uh, questions that is being looked at by the one six committee. Uh, the lawsuit focuses, of course, we describe the rally, we describe what happened at the rally. We focus on the violent attack. We're seeking redress for the violent attack that followed the rally. Um, the the, the, the uh, January 6th committee will look at and will attempt to determine uh, who the real organizers were. We know that uh, Stop the Steal and various other uh, groups uh, played a role in getting the rally together. The real question is, people who worked on this rally were campaign and White House veterans of the Trump administration. Um, what was the role of the president and those around him? I know we'll talk about this. You've been very outspoken on this, like Mark Meadows, uh, in uh, the consummation of this rally and in uh, the violence that followed, including failing to stop the violence. Um, So there's a lot of unanswered questions about who's really responsible uh, for the planning uh, of the um, of the rally uh, and so responsible for the insurrection as well. And I think the one six committee is going to make referrals on many of those points. Yeah. The reason why I ask that is because there's a quote in the by um, by Racine, who turns around and says, our intent, and this is regarding the lawsuit, is to hold these violent mobsters and violent hate groups accountable and to get every penny of damage we can. If it so happens that we bankrupt them, then that's a good day. Well, I see it a little bit different, and I would love to get your scholarly opinion on it. While I acknowledge that these violent mobsters and the violent hate groups should be held accountable, I always believe that you have to sort of start at the top, right? And basically, the mobster, you know, the mob, the insurrectionists, these hate groups, I see them as the bottom, the absolute bottom. The person that we really want, as far as I'm concerned, is the one that organized the entire thing in the first place. And my understanding, based upon some information out of Washington, is that the organizing group of the Ellipse ultimately was taken over by the campaign by Eric and Laura Trump and by others. And in coordination with Mark Meadows, This other group, this new group, and I think it's a mother-daughter team, to be honest, a well-funded mother-daughter team that took over the Ellipse, I truly believe that they're responsible, that they should too be held accountable for the damage that was done, and not just the damage to the property, but to life and limb. Well, that is why, um, that is, those are the kinds of, Uh, legitimate, substantial, important questions that the January 6th committee is getting at. Uh, They are, they have a big and talented group of members and staff who are um, doing nothing all day long, but attempting to get to the bottom of those kinds of facts. Uh, In terms of our lawsuit, uh, our uh, starting point is We know the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and dozens of their members 
violently assaulted the Capitol in a conspiracy to prevent uh, members of Congress from doing their constitutional duty and um, recognizing the electors from the states. And so we're starting there. Uh, and um, uh, it is a big legal landscape. The DCAG has the power, the standing to uh, respond to these issues. But the committee and many others are looking at the questions you raise. And um, depending on the who was involved and what they did, or in the case of White House officials failed to do in failing to act for hours, it appears, I think that there will be referrals at the end of the committee's investigation. And yes, we do have to hold all of these paramilitary movement groups responsible for their actions. And let's just hope that uh, this case doesn't get stalled the same way that uh, Trump has taught the country how to stall a case. But moving forward, Norm, this week was a big week for the January 6th committee, especially as it held Mark the Fuck Meadows to the fire and showed his absolute culpability. But we also now also have material proof of how Fox News has tried to whitewash the historical record since that day and the hypocrisy of its most powerful voices. What did you think when you first heard, you know, Liz Cheney read out those text messages from Sean Hannity and Laura Ingraham and um, Brian Kilmeade? Well, I thought that it uh, exposed uh, to uh, yet again uh, to the country and to the world uh, what uh, all of us have long known, which is Fox News uh, does not... uh, uh, maintain any shred of uh, uh, journalistic independence in these programs. Um, you know, there are some legitimate news folks, although every day seems to bring a new headline about them leaving. But there have been, there, and there still are good uh, middle-of-the-road honest reporters at Fox News. But for these individuals and for the vast majority of the programming, um, they're a part of the um, of the former president's uh, attack on democracy, uh, and so to you know to to see these um, statements uh, and to hear Liz Cheney uh, share them, where they're saying um, this, uh, you know, from from the sympathetic perspective that what's going on and that the president needs to take steps uh, as if as if they're a part of the administration. But here's what's striking to me uh, about it, Michael, even when his closest allies, I mean, this is not independent journalism at all. You know, I'm uh, sometimes I support the current administration. Sometimes I'm critical of the current administration. I try to maintain independence. Um, the um, uh, the same with the one six committee, my former colleagues on the Hill. I sometimes uh, I agree with the steps that they're taking. If there's something I disagree with, I say so. These are these are people who are part of Team Trump. But for them to call for help to say, hey, you've got to stop this. And, and still it looks like for hours the president just watched as much as up to three hours, just watch the carnage in the Capitol and did nothing, uh, that is 
that inaction is as bad as any affirmative action that the president took over the course of his presidency. And boy, we know he did a lot of bad things. So uh, that's what I thought, the shock of uh, presidential inaction that was highlighted for me. So I'll tell you, to me, the craziest thing was what happened after the release of the text. And I think Vanity Fair had an article on it that um, I'm going to quote, which these two paragraphs, or part of two paragraphs, sort of spells out exactly what's going on there, not just in Foxland, but also with these GOP sycophantic followers of Trump. And they turn around and they say, and I'm quoting now, Hannity did acknowledge his text to Meadows Tuesday night, but he spent a good portion of his segment lashing out at the corrupt House panel for publishing the texts and smearing Trump. And then he goes on to say, I am an honest, straightforward person. I'm calling bullshit. I know you. You're not. I say the same thing in private that I say to all of you. Liz Cheney does. Um, Liz Cheney knows this. She doesn't seem to care. She's interested in one thing and one thing only: smearing Trump and purging him from the party. Who? And then Sean Hannity later expressed outrage over his private text messages being released again publicly. Right then, it says to debate his own media scandal. Hannity brought in the opposing forces of Dan Bongino and Geraldo Rivera. <laughs> I beg you, Sean, to remember the frame of mind you were in when you wrote that text on January 6th, said Rivera, who described the riot as being unleashed, incited, and inspired by the President of the United States. Now, this gets great, because this guy is just a clown and a half. In response, Bongino accuses Rivera of backstabbing Trump in a disgusting manner, adding... It's really vile that you pretend to be this guy's friend. Now, this is the whole problem. First of all, let me be very clear. Donald Trump doesn't have any friends, and Geraldo Rivera was never one of them. He's only a friend so long as something Donald can get out of you. And Geraldo knows that as well. Meanwhile, <laughs> so does this guy Bongino. So this is, the big, this is the big problem that we have here. All of a sudden you have one guy, meaning Geraldo, and good for him, acknowledging that these actions were disgusting, that they are a complete denigration of our democracy and the Constitution for which the president and all members raise their hand and they swear an oath to. Instead, now you got Bongino, this ass clown, who sits there and said, it's disgusting, you're backstabbing your friend. No, schmuck. What you're doing is you're telling the truth. You're telling what everybody has seen with their own eyes, has heard with their own ears. That's what he's doing. And the fact that you could now bring this and make it personal. Holy shit, Geraldo, you're backstabbing your friend. What kind of an asshole are you? That's, that's crazy talk. Well, you know why I like coming on this podcast, Michael? Because you make me seem calm and uh, a neutral <laughs> and dispassionate. Uh, I, um, I think that um, it, it, it is a tremendous danger, the phenomenon that you've identified one example of, um, the Fox News, uh, Newsmax uh, phenomenon, 
is a tremendous danger to the health of our democracy. In a democratic system, in, in we're now the world's uh, oldest uh, continually functioning democracy in the form of a constitutional republic, of course. Um, you know, you, you have respect, free speech and free press protections. So the solution uh, to misstatements of the kind you described uh, is to fight lies with the truth. Some people are worried. They look at segments like the one you just described, the debate. I did watch it on Hannity between Bongino and Geraldo Rivera. Rivera does show some independence. He's one of the, sometimes, one of the voices that speaks with independence on that uh, network, one of the commentators. Um, eh, but it's a tremendous danger and some question whether the, the, the good that is being driven out by the bad and whether um, we're deteriorating as a democracy. I think that despite the uh, continued uh, strong ratings that Fox gets, uh, you know, uh, uh, Tucker Carlson, uh, who I used to have a very good relationship with, um, uh, has, has out-Hannity'd Hannity to get to the top of the ratings. He's even more dissociated from reality. Um, the, the, the good news is that uh, the election in 2020 was a re great national referendum. Are we going to go in the direction of democracy or autocracy in the United States? And you were a part of this. I give you credit for this. People sometimes uh, blast me on Twitter and otherwise, uh, uh, but but you uh, spoke up and you spoke out, and uh, you've um, you know you've you've uh, you've made amends, you've uh, paid the price, and you your voice was a part of that referendum. It shed, you shed incredible light uh, through your testimony. I know through our many conversations when I was investigating impeachment, so valuable to me. I always tell people the first person to really, really call my attention to the nature of, the, of Donald Trump and the Trump conspiracy against democracy, which includes Fox News and Newsmax and the rest was Michael Cohen when I came to New York. Remember, I sat with you for the first time and we talked. I sure and do. And you told me he will never leave the Oval Office willingly. And we saw how that came to fruition. So I'm what I'm saying is, bottom line, despite Hannity and, uh, and the other enablers uh, of Trump and Trump himself and the whole Trump conspiracy against democracy, I'm optimistic. Our country did the right thing in 2020, and, and I believe that the vast majority of Americans um, have no use for these assaults on democracy. It is a minority fringe of the country, and the supporters of Fox News are a fringe, too. Yep. Well, let's hope. But, Norm, Liz Cheney 
spent a good deal of time framing President Trump's actions as a dereliction of duty and spoke in very, very clear statutory terms to walk the committee towards what appears to be a criminal liability charge for the former president. If you would, discuss with me how they get there with the evidence that they have and ultimately who would be handed such a case. Well, um, the... Uh, committee can, uh, and and it's happened many times before with congressional committees, in their final report, they can include a referral, uh, federal criminal referral, state criminal referral. They can spell out the evidence. They can share their view that laws were violated. We did this in the impeachment report on the Ukraine inquiry. We explained the laws that were violated by the president's behavior. We did it when we were investigating the Mueller report in the House Judiciary Committee. We had Bob Mueller come and testify, and our members explained the evidence that Trump had obstructed justice. Here, um, there are a, a plethora of federal and state laws where the committee could say, hey, we've gathered the evidence. Um, we think there should be an investigation or even we think there should be charges uh, of the following violations. Um, I, I uh, will just uh, give you a few of those examples. Um, you'll remember that uh, Robert Mueller brought charges for conspiracy uh, to defraud the United States, right? Uh, so here, I mean, that uh, is a possibility. We need to see if the evidence is there that Trump and those around him, Meadows, did they conspire? That is, did they have an agreement to sell a phony pack of lies to the country, to their followers, to Congress, and to get Mike Pence, instead of doing his constitutional duty, to actually overturn the election, to defraud the United States? By having Donald Trump remain as president, you know, that's what they wanted Mike Pence to do, even though he lost the election. That is a legal coup, okay? Or they could, there's, uh, and Liz Cheney seemed to be focused on this, 18 U.S.C. 1512, uh, which is tampering with uh, witnesses uh, or with uh, official proceedings, okay? Um, worth but please don't forget, Norm, but Norm, please don't forget 18 U.S.C. 1505 in this conversation. Well, obstruction. We got to look at all the obstruction offenses, too. Uh, so, um, uh, uh, you know, that is certainly that is certainly relevant, Michael. Um, and and it, there's the laws. There's also all the laws about uh, election fraud. You've got to look at um, the election fraud offenses. So we've identified a uh, 1512 is in that family of obstruction offenses like 1505. Um, so, you know, th th those are the more plausible. Some scholars say, well, you should look at, you should also, um, uh, look at, uh, charges of whether this was uh, sedition, seditious, uh, conspiracy, um, uh, whether it was a federal RICO offense. That was a, so there's a long list of federal offenses. I have an op-ed, if people are interested, where I sketch out the main possibilities with the uh, GOP 
DOJ stalwart from the Reagan and Bush administrations. He, in fact, at one point, he was Bill Barr's boss back then, uh, Don Air, where we lay out some of these. And you can find you can find that on CNN Opinion if uh, if your listeners are interested. Let me spend a moment. They could also do the state offenses. That's so, so important. We already know. We've talked about it today. Fannie Willis, the Fulton County DA, is getting ready to impanel a special grand jury to look at charges. You know, you've been very busy uh, with the Manhattan DA in uh, potential um, uh, potential fraud charges in New York relating to the fi- alleged financial frauds of Trump. Uh, in Fulton County, the frauds are election frauds, as we've said. You can't tell the uh, you can't tell the Georgia Secretary of State just find eleven thousand seven hundred and eighty votes when they don't exist. One more than necessary to defeat Biden and illegitimately Trump win that state. So we don't know if it's if if a crime can be proven or not. Right now, it's allegations, it's possibilities. But boy, the DA is going hard at it. My bet is she charges Trump and maybe others, perhaps Meadows, for going over the line of what is permitted uh, when you're a powerful government official. So, and we know the DA is talking to the committee, trying to negotiate cooperation. So those are some of the places, state and federal, any state where Trump was trying to steal an election outcome, uh, potentially could investigate him criminally. Yeah. And the reason why I brought up 1505 when we, when we were talking is because it has that very, very specific language, which is sort of the catch-all. It's through action or inaction. Um, corruptly seek to obstruct or impede Congress's proceedings. What it does is it basically boxes him in. And I think between uh, 1812, I'm sorry, 1512 and 1505, I believe that they have an incredibly strong case against, um, against Donald and Meadows and many others. But Norm, in moving forward, it seems that the committee is focused on controlling the news cycle each week with the release of key information relating to specific witnesses. Now, it certainly destroyed Meadows. I mean, this man has absolutely zero fucking credibility now. I, you know, they tried to do that to me, right? Despite the fact I was using documentary evidence to prove the truth of the statements that I was putting forth. But with Meadows, he now has absolutely no credibility. What can we expect moving forward when the real hearings begin, something that you were involved with um, early on, and we have that Watergate moment with folks testifying before the cameras? What should we expect? Well, I think we learned something very important this week, um, and you had a lot to say about it, and you got a lot of attention for it. Um, expect the unexpected. We saw that with the information that came out about Meadows. They had a lot more than was publicly known. And I thought the committee was very skillful in the way that they um, uh, uh, released new information uh, uh, day after day after day as the controversy played out. So we now know, for example, that uh, Meadows had the uh, Colonel Waldron PowerPoint for a coup. It was an out-and-out coup, including using the military. 
and that he met with uh, Waldron eight to 10 times. That's stunning. We have the text that Meadows got similarly calling for a legal coup from Jim Jordan on totally bogus grounds, reported to be Jim Jordan, um, that the state legislatures can just set aside the electors and substitute Trump electors. That was early in the process before uh, uh, the, the votes were even counted. So, you know, it was a rejection of letting the process work. It's bad enough to do that in January, but to, to do it uh, so early in the process. We, and we have a wide variety of other texts uh, including the ones we've talked about with the Fox News personalities who so clearly are part of the Trump team, no semblance of independence at all. So when you add that up, I think it teaches us we're going to have a lot more surprises. I expect that the hearings and then the report that will follow them will be a mosaic where you'll have witnesses uh, who will come in, you know, they've talked to over 300 people. For every Meadows and Bannon who won't com- cooperate and comply with the legal subpoenas, there's hundreds who do. So you're going to have them tell the story in a new way. And I expect they're going to illuminate, you know, what did the president do? The place where we started, how directly responsible is the president for that violence on January 6th, for everything that came before it? for everything that happened after it, Michael, because the big lie is still going on. And uh, put together all the evidence, the documents, the witness testimony, tell a gripping story to the American people. Those hearings are going to be like the Watergate hearings or our impeachment trial. Everybody's going to watch. Well, everybody needs to watch. But speaking about witnesses that have been coming in, first of all, let me just say that it's not just going after Trump for the January 6th insurrection. There is more than that. There's family members that were there. There's Rudy Giuliani who was there. You know, you had plenty of people. You had all of the organizers that are now uh, some who are testifying, some who aren't. So there's more than just Donald Trump's um, ass on the line here. There's quite a few, but since we were talking about people who were supposed to come forward, you know, in the fact that we learned so much from the release of the select uh, Mark Meadows information, texts, and so on, what happens when it's Jeffrey Clark's turn? What do you think that we can expect to learn from that? And what is the strategy for getting information from someone who intends to invoke their Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination instead of providing the information pursuant to the subpoena? Well, um, let's let's uh, start with uh, the Clark situation, and then we'll um, Eastman also, of course, is invoking the Fifth Amendment. Stone is going to show up uh, and is going to take the Fifth Amendment, and. You know, I think the committee is being smart in how they're um, how they are uh, picking their fights, Michael. Right? They're not sending a stream of these cases uh, to DOJ to prosecute. Seems like they're doing one at a time. So they did ban them. That got well launched. Uh, now the Meadows case is coming behind Bannon. And I think that, um, uh, you know, they're going to 
uh, let the Meadows case get well along, then they'll make some decisions, maybe Clark, maybe uh, Eastman or others. Um, you know, they are being respectful of the Fifth Amendment privilege like they were of executive privilege. Um, part of the thing that's so striking about the Meadows situation is he himself produced the documents. I think you had some unflattering things to say about Meadows' uh, uh, cleverness. Dumbest, dumbest ass, dumbest, dumbest asshole uh, on I the mean, hill. Well, I, I wouldn't necessarily pick those words. I don't think it was a very clever move because he created the record for the contempt prosecution. DOJ isn't going to have to get into a bunch of issues of executive privilege because these, you know, if he's trading PowerPoints with Colonel Waldron about a coup and he's having eight to 10 meetings with outside actors, there's no executive privilege. And the committee will simply say, and I think the criminal complaint will say, uh, you know, these are matters as to which privilege does not apply. Um, and then in any event, the privilege is inapplicable because there is no privilege here, as the courts have been ruling. Um, so I think that um, I think that we're going to see, uh, you know, somebody once Meadows gets further along, maybe Clark will be the next target. But they're getting so much cooperation. They're learning so much. They've made an example of Meadows and um, and Bannon. That seems to be uh, persuading other people. Michael, I was on the air when one of the January 6th organizers, rally organizers, um, uh, was at CNN. And I stayed in the chair and I watched the interview and the guy openly said, his lawyer tried to cover it up, but the guy openly said, the reason that I'm cooperating, one of them is because I see the committee is serious because they're recommending people for contempt. That's why they got hundreds of cooperators. So they shouldn't get drawn into too many sideshows. And then in terms of the fifth, you know, people, the way it has to be exercised, Clark, Eastman, Stone. I saw something today saying that Stone is going to do this. You got to show up. You hear the questions. The committee asks the questions. You answer with the Fifth Amendment. And then the committee decides on a question by question by question basis. Does the Fifth Amendment apply? Okay. Let me just break this down into two things. First of all, if I'm accurate, didn't Trump also at one point in time say that only the mob pleads the fifth? He cast. I mean, somewhere yes, along the line, I remember he that he cast, like it was yesterday. Or only, uh, or only guilty people take the fifth. He cast aspersions. Yes. So that's the first thing. The second is the mistake that's being made. First of all, people like Steve Bannon. Don't get to declare executive privilege. He was never part of the. Ex he was never um, part of government, and therefore, you know, he can't then claim executive privilege um, on you know his conversations. He's not a lawyer, so he's not able to turn around and use that as an excuse. But in so many of these cases, even if Clark decides to plead the fifth, it's not going to protect him. It's not going to protect him as there are text messages. There's PowerPoint. Points, there's documents, there's um, counter testimony by others that all can be the basis of an indictment against him for, for crimes that he's complicit 
in, whether by action or by inaction, which goes back to what we were talking about before. So, And the gentleman that you were referring to that was at CNN, uh, I believe his name is Dustin Stockton. He was the, yes. one of the two organizers, original, original organizers of the um, Ellipse um, location um, there for the, uh, on January 6th. But one of the things that will ultimately come out is that he and um, his co-organizer, a young lady named Jennifer Lawrence, and not the actress Jennifer Lawrence, um, it was taken from them by the RNC, by the campaign, etc., whatever, um, as well as Eric and Laura Trump. And I find that to be incredibly significant because... It now places another member of the Trump family smack dead center in the middle of this horseshit, right? What was it that they were doing? Why did they take this this um, this rally that was not a march? It was just a rally, which is what the permit called for. And so good for him and good for her for testifying. And we can only hope that this committee starts to act quickly expeditiously and not allow Trump to, you know, to wait us all out for midterm elections in hopes of destroying this thing. Now, one of the other things I wanted to ask you, Norm, is are you at all worried about the prospect of Democrats losing control of the House in the midterms? I mean, do you think, is there enough time between now and November for the committee to do what is needed to do in order to get the truth and to hold folks accountable and ultimately refer these bad actors for criminal prosecution? Well, it's, it's, early, it's early days yet to... Uh, predict what's going to happen in the midterms, Michael. Obviously, uh, if the House of Representatives changes hands, that'll have a material effect on any open matters. But I think the the committee understands that quite apart from who may take over the Congress, that they need to be able to wrap up their work and to um, make to have their hearings and to make their referrals before uh, we get into the the thick of the election season in 2022, much less uh, into uh, Congress, uh, the new Congress, whoever may be in charge at the beginning of 2023. So that's why you're seeing them move with great dispatch. Um, I think they've been um successful more successful than we were uh in uh, moving uh their cases quickly to court i mean bannon was uh indicted uh, just uh, three weeks after the referral on the criminal side that was doj's doing but it was a good referral on the civil side you've already got both a district court and a court of appeals judgment smacking down Trump's executive privilege in the case he brought to cut off the committee's document discovery from his administration. They're going on a pace that's akin to Watergate, where it was a little over three months from the um, subpoena for the Watergate tapes to a Supreme Court decision. Uh, I think, you know, the matter will be queued up at the Supreme Court no later than the 23rd. They need to file by the 23rd. 
so uh, I think that uh, that's of December before Christmas. So, you know, I think that things are moving at a brisk pace where we're going to be able to see some of the outcomes you are asking about, the concrete actions, uh, you know, in the uh, first couple quarters uh, of 2022. Look, they've already talked to 300 people. I mean, they're over 300. Okay. So, Norman, how many people do they have to speak to? You know, one of the f- things I also said to you the first time that we met is you appear to be in, like, an eternal optimist. Oh, I, yeah. on the other hand, like many, <laughs> like many of my listeners, are getting very pessimistic yes. that this process will move forward in an expeditious manner that's not going to get screwed up by the midterm elections. Because here's what we know about the midterm elections. And obviously, it's not what I want to happen but it's most probably it's probably going to happen it looks like the house will ultimately turn back republican you know historically that's what happens when you have a democrat in the white house generally the house ends up turning but more important than even the historical perspective is the fact that you now also have um because of gerrymandering you have at least 10 seats that are going to change not because the area has changed if you had the old map, but because the new map is going to create this change. So Democrats have a very, very serious fight on their hand for the midterm elections. Now, do I think that it's possible that Democrats, which would be an amazing referendum on Trump's now impotence going going forward and his relevance to the GOP, would be if, of course, if the Democrats retained control over the House. And it's very possible, especially in light of the fact that this now Texas state abortion law and other and other um, sort of crazy laws that are being enacted by these GOP led groups, it could potentially I mean, it could potentially change everything, which would be truly fantastic. And again, it would be a real referendum on the fact that Donald is not this all-powerful, mighty no. Wizard of Oz hiding behind, you know, hiding behind a curtain. Well, I, I, you know, I think we're going to see. We already know that uh, he's not uh, that omnipotent, omnipresent power because he failed in his most important political salvage mission himself. Except if you ask him. It was stolen, hence the big <laughs> lie, hence the $200 well, million dollars plus that he's grifted off the American what, people. What truer? We all know that's not the case. Certainly, there may be a few hate listeners to this podcast who, who uh, believe in the big lie, uh, but the people who are your audience know better, Michael, and that the ridiculousness, he's persuaded nobody except the, his own converts. It's like, uh, 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 you know, it's, it's also a failure uh, of public persuasion, the aftermath of the big lie, or what we can call big lie 2.0, or big lie the 2021 edition. So we know the president isn't all powerful. I think we need to let, I think it is early days yet. And I think we need to let the process play out. We started the podcast on the new lawsuit that we brought. There's going to be other civil, criminal, regulatory, and other actions. Accountability is moving. 
Um, I want to see what happens with federal voting rights legislation. That can make a big difference to pushing back on the election hijack that is being planned, what failed in 2020. The followers of Trump would like to try in 2022 or 2024. we got to push back on that. So there's a lot of yet-to-be-determined pieces before we prognosticate uh, for good or for ill. Uh, what's going to happen, including to Trump and the Trump-backed candidates in uh, 2022. So we'll see. We'll keep a sharp eye on Well, look, I can tell you one thing. It's going to take the work of a lot of people, people like yourself included. The other night, I actually happened to see Scaramucci at his um, Skybridge um, party. And, um, you know, I spent a few minutes with him and I actually asked him uh, that I think what we all need to do is we need to hit the road for the midterm um, for the midterm ele- uh, elections as well. And I think that we have to put on something like the way the Republicans have CPAC. I keep calling it DPAC, you know, the Dem- Democracy Political Action you know, Committee. And I think we really have to do things like this and go to places like Pennsylvania where, you know, it's still purple mm. and we can, you know, we, we can actually change the outcome and the result because anybody who has you know a microphone like you do or Scaramucci does or you know Rosie O'Donnell or you know um, Lawrence Tribe etc you know we all have a microphone and I think it's about time that we started to really use it um, as best as we possibly can because like I keep saying on this podcast I say it on television the country's in real serious trouble and our democracy is in real serious trouble. And it hurts me. It really hurts me to think that our democracy could be shred so easily by this P.T. Barnum, this, this orange-crusted, dusted, bloviated, ignorant, arrogant asshole can destroy. One guy can destroy our democracy, despite the fact it's taken us hundreds of years to develop. And I say this again also uh, respectfully to the rest of the world. If you have a strong America, you have a strong world. If you have a weak America, you're going to have a weak world because our democratic values, despite the fact that there are many countries that don't agree uh, or that they're run differently, their people still aspire to be like America. And to allow this guy to destroy, to, to allow him to destroy it is really what the what is laying on the hands right now of this January 6th committee on the district attorney here in New York, on the attorney general here in New York and Georgia and D.C. and so on. But just moving forward again, Norm, um, there have been major alarms about how the GOP has inserted itself into the machinery of both state and local government and seek to control how these elections and ultimately make decisions that will impact who will win the next election. How alarmed should we all be that there are electoral system, um, that our electoral system is being hijacked and right under our noses? Because there was that Barton Gelman article two weeks ago about how the next coup has already started. How do we push back against these forces? If you would discuss this with my listeners. Well, um, I try to do that in a, a nonpartisan way with my bipartisan co-chair, former GOP governor, cabinet member, Christy Todd Whitman, at our organization, the State's United Democracy Center. Um, I'll offer that as an example. What we do is work with uh, state and 
uh, local officials, both parties across the country who uh, want to defend democracy. It's where we started. We br- we're bringing lawsuits from coast to coast against the uh, assaulters of democracy like this militia lawsuit. We're engaged uh, to stop the phony audits that have gone on around the country and just telling the truth about the system, working to support uh, election officials who want to do the right thing. Um, and, you know, that's my bit. Um, everybody um, has to respond to that in their own way. Uh, every American can do their part. It's as simple as uh, signing up to be a poll worker. We need poll workers. It's as little as going and voting yourself because we need every vote to show up. When somebody, maybe they're well-intentioned, a friend uh, repeats the big lie to you, say to them kindly, politely, with love, but firmly, sorry, that's just not true. The election was not stolen. uh, And Joe Biden is legitimately elected president of the United States. Arm yourself with facts. So whether you're... Norm, have you ever tried... Have you ever tried to uh, actually tried. convince one of these lunatics? I know people, and I'm not bullshitting you here. I know people who are really wickedly bright, Ivy League intelligent kids, you know, and Ivy League parents who, you know, who I know through, of course, our children. And they are 100% certain that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. I scratch my head. I say, you stupid asshole. How could you even say well, something like that? that? You're too intelligent. I don't do it. <laughs> I find I I do try. I do it all the time. I had a cab driver the other day. We should make this all show the next time I'm with you because I know our time is up. But I had a cab driver the other day and uh, he was a uh, Trump believer in the big lie. We had a long cab ride together and I just worked on him kindly, politely, but firmly the whole time. Come on. You know, that's not true. Here's the actual facts. Uh, You know, how could it be that the same uh, ballot that it would be uh, that it would legitimately elect a Republican member of Congress, but not Donald Trump, just wear him down with truth and love. And by the end of the, the ride, the guy said, oh, you know, you make some good points. Maybe that's not true. So as always, yeah. Well, maybe he's not listening to you. Uh, that's maybe he's not. Possible. You know, Norm. I'm so sorry. I have, as as you know, we're coming. We're, it's always an hour, and the hour goes by quick. I just have one last question for your thought, I, and I'm curious, simply because it's you, right? Can you tell me there are folks who are going on these hunger strikes for the passage of the John Lewis Voting Act? What do you think that that accomplishes and are in such a dire situation that it's worth risking people's lives for the passage of a voting bill? What's your thoughts on that? Well, the the voting bills are critical, Michael, because they cut off the worst misconduct of the uh, election hijackers of the uh, former president uh, and those around him who are so, so determined uh, to overturn the legitimate, fair, lawful outcome of elections. And um, so I think we need to do everything in our power, each of us, like I was just saying, what these, there's a group of student hunger strikers who are right outside the White House. 
And what they and others like them are doing is uh, doing what's in their power. So I don't think the whole country should go on a hunger strike. But yes, I do believe that it is a, a positive um, that uh, some people are doing this to call attention to the critically important issue. And it's bubbling up in Congress, the critically important issue of voting rights. Uh, I'm optimistic. I know you've said I'm a congenital optimist. I'm going to leave you you and your listeners with this optimistic vote. I think we're going to have a debate on voting rights in Congress, and we're going to have a vote. We might win, we might lose. I won't predict the outcome, but just to have the debate, given the rules in Congress by itself will be a triumph in the Senate. We're going to be able to have a great national discussion about this and a vote. Uh, And fingers crossed, uh, it will actually get us some yeah. results. So I'll leave you on that optimistic well, let's, note. Yeah, let's hope so. And Norm, as always, amazing insight. Thank you for your time. And of course, I will be seeing you very soon, my friend. By the way, happy holidays. Happy New Year if I don't see you before that. Thanks, Michael. As always, it's a pleasure. I learned so much when I come on the podcast. Thank you. And I'll see you very soon. And may you and all your listeners have a very, very happy holiday season and a wonderful new year. Be well, Norm. Thank you. Thanks, my friend. And now for today's mea culpa. In thinking about the world of shit facing Mark Meadows, I can't stop thinking about my own history with Donald Trump. Not that I have much in common with more on Mark Meadows, but if there is one thing, it's intense regret. Whoever serves this man in any capacity winds up either under indictment or with their career in flames. There are those who wish to compare Meadows to John Dean and make him some kind of erstwhile fall guy for a venal politician hell-bent on destroying democracy. But Dean eventually found his moral compass and turned on Nixon. Thus far, Meadows seems hell-bent on pleasing Trump and staying in former President Trump's good graces. In that light, he will go down in history as Trump's chief enabler. A man who opened the door to every fucking lunatic and conspiracy carpetbagger who walked through the door. The panel's months-long investigation has revealed the myriad ways in which Meadows is inextricably bound to the January 6th attack, serving less as a chief of staff than chief enabler to a president who was desperate to hold on to power. He joined a January 2nd call, now under investigation, in which Trump pressed Georgia's Secretary of State to find enough votes to defeat Joe Biden. He repeatedly passed on conspiracy theories and falsehoods to top administration officials, encouraging them to overturn the election. And he participated in discussions about the January 6th rally that turned violent, saying the National Guard would be present to protect pro-Trump people. Though the traditional function of a White House chief of staff is as a gatekeeper, Meadows instead threw the gates to the Oval Office wide fucking open, acting as a facilitator to conspiracy theorists and often declining to tamp down Trump's obsession with false election claims. This is the terrible power that Trump has over the other people. His ability to bring out the absolute fucking worst in a person in order to serve his basic needs is a trait of dictators and con men. Meadows should be duly punished for his actions and what he inflicted upon the country. 
but he should also serve as a warning. The Trump cult of personality is strong and it's toxic and can make good people make bad choices and make bad people do absolutely terrible things. Let's hope this committee can bring it all to an end once and for all. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Mea Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea Culpa, nothing but the truth. This is-